to welcome you back, Daniel Williamson. You've brought your football library card and you've shown it to John Nicholson at the front desk, which means you have got in uh, because you are adding a book to the one that is already there. Before we talk about the new one, Blue and Gold Passion, uh, it seems to be doing well. Yeah, I'm really pleased with um, how it's been received. Uh, and, you know, that, that's the main reason why I wanted to do another book. I think had I, had I done that book and it just sort of flopped, I probably wouldn't have had the confidence. But, you know, all the kind words that everyone said about it made me, made me want to go and do another one. And that's why, I'm, that's why we're here today. I've been desperately looking to see when you came into the library, but it was over a year ago, I can tell Um, you. Because what I do is I write down all the names of the people who come into the library. You are here talking about when two worlds collide. Now, as someone who's written a book about a niche competition, I salute you. Um, It's a great book because it's a book that I didn't know I needed to read. So thank you. Thank you for the kind words. It's got a whole load of great interviewees that I wanted to uh, spotlight first. John McGovern, who um, travelled with Nottingham Forest. Martin de Cruz, who has got a book out on the teams from Uruguay who had success in the Intercontinental Cup. And Stephen Scragg, whom I spoke to very recently. You got Stephen to talk about Liverpool. Yeah, and uh, it's a subject he uh, loves talking about. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, I've known him for years through um, when I used to write for these football times, and uh, it was it was him releasing his first book that actually inspired me to do my first book. So, uh, kept in touch with him, and um, yeah, he was he was great value having a having a chat about that Liverpool team of the early eighties and um, their defeats to Flamengo and Independiente. Hureka, I have found it. You were the 97th visitor to the football library. Stephen Scragg was the 98th. We last spoke in February 2021. So um, lovely to catch up with you. And you do place this book, When Two Worlds Collide, all about the Intercontinental Cup, uh, next to Blue and Gold Passion. So thank you for that. Stephen has become a kind of book whisperer. I don't know if you listen to these Football Times podcasts these days, but... Every time someone is on, when I was on, Steve wanted me to write another book. <laughs> I know, I think he's on his, is he on his fourth now and he's probably doing a fifth one behind the scenes. Yeah, so, uh, yeah the fourth is uh, out, the fifth one's on its way. Yeah, and, he, and he's, you know, he's, he's a good lad and he's, he's very encouraging and helpful to people who want to write a book. So, you know, he's always good with his time and, and he's, you know, he's got encyclopedic knowledge, especially of Liverpool, but obviously of, of different teams as well. The other thing that he says is, look, I'm too old to write anything about basically past the Premier League era. So his focus is kind of before Bosman. Anything after Bosman, it's, it's, a, it's a wire. The Intercontinental Cup or the Toyota Cup, as it will be known throughout our conversation, uh, unless you want to standardise it and just call it the Intercontinental Cup. Whatever you want, I'm, I'm quite happy to, to, to flip it. Um, of course, of, of course, the Toyota Cup has only only became its name in 1980 just for marketing reasons. But um, yeah, that's probably how it's known to, to sort of most modern audiences. But what is this competition if not for marketing? And there is a fascinating um, series of, of quotations near the end of the book where we find out that FIFA didn't even recognise it. Yeah, so the, the competition was, um, I mean, not, not, nothing to do with Toyota in the first 20 years. It was created in 1960. The South Americans saw that, you know, over in Europe, there was a, a European Cup um, going on, and it had been going on for five years by 1960. And basically, basically they wanted a, a piece of the action, and, and they thought, if we create our own continental um, cup, uh, which is the Copa Libertadores, 
we can then try and arrange a game against the winners of the European Cup. And that's how it was born, really. FIFA classed it as a friendly competition, but it was it was effectively a collaboration between two confederations, Commonwealth and UEFA, without any kind of input from FIFA. So that's that's where the sort of FIFA angle comes in. Is this like, it's just hit me, is it like when FIFA co-opted the Bayon d'Or, which was a France football invention, and they've... They've combined it, and then they have their own Player of the Year now awards. Yeah, I think they, I think they like to um, almost like watch something grow, and then when it grows to a certain strength, they like to uh, take put it, it in over. Qatar. It's, it's, it's all part of their kind of power grab, isn't it? I mean, you see that they're trying to do the, the World Cup every two years. There's even talk of the Club World Cup, which obviously um, absorbed the Intercontinental Cup. There's talk about that expanding and becoming almost like a summer event, you know, with 24 of the best teams from across the world. So they, they like to take things and, and, and run with it. And wreck obviously it. Try, try and wreck it, yeah. wreck it and make as much money as they can. Um, so, yeah, that's, 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 that's kind of their um, MO, isn't it, really? I was going to go in order of the book, but I've changed my mind. I'm going to go in reverse. Do you think that the low wattage final of 2004 led to the curtailment of the Intercontinental Cup? Or was that just a coincidence? Yeah, it was a coincidence, really, because um, if, you, if you remember, uh, in 2000, which was four years before the, um, the final version of the Intercontinental Cup, FIFA held their first Club World Cup, and it was called the Club World Championship. It was held in, in Rio. It was held in January 2000, so actually six weeks after the 99 version of the Intercontinental Cup. So technically, Man United, who won, who won it in, in December 99, were only world champions for about six weeks and then they went over to, to Rio to contest this inaugural competition, the one that controversially led them to point out the FA Cup. Um, FIFA tried to run it again in 2001, but there was an issue with one of the marketing partners that they were, they were, they were sort of in bed with. Um, they went bankrupt, they ended up cancelling the whole thing and then it sort of went under the radar for a couple of years until it came back in 2005. Well, this 2004 tournament, it was Anthe Caldas against Jose Mourinho's Porto. And what a factoid that Vita Baia got injured. And who should step up and become the hero for Porto? Nuno Espirito Santo, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> well, actually, Mourinho had moved on then. He joined of Chelsea course. in the summer. He won the European Cup and then he moved on. But the team really was, it was still, you know, barring one or two players, it was still his team. They still played a similar style. Anthe Caldas... They, they shocked Boca Juniors in the Copa, uh, Copa Libertadores final. Obviously, it would have been nice for it to go out with a bang with a, a big game. But yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, he, he came on for Vita Bayo, who was injured. And he didn't touch the ball once in the shootout that Porto won 8-7. Goalkeepers are just always the hero, aren't they? Regarding, even if they don't touch the ball, if, if, you, if you win a penalty shootout, everyone goes and mobs the goalkeeper. So, so he, he, he sort of became a, a hero of sorts without actually touching the there's ball. A, um, there's a book in there. <laughs> There's a book yeah. in Goalkeepers who uh, I think Jonathan Wilson's probably written about it already. Um, you will have so many interviews lined up for this book because it seems to gallop through South American and European football in the last 70 years. Um, so I, I imagine you've already, and you, you mentioned as you go along, there are fans, there are podcasters, there are writers in the English language. It's a brilliant book because of the source material. I just wanted to ask you who your favourite person to talk to was. People I spoke to were great and gave me, you know, gave me little bits that were really useful, and um, I'm really thankful for everyone's time. I think personal favourite would probably be Arigo Saki. I had to get a translator, so I put, put the call out on Twitter, 
and um, a lad called Joe Terry, who speaks Italian, said, I'll do it. And basically, we got on a, on a WhatsApp call with um, me, him, and Enrico Saki, and, and, and he sort of translated as the middleman. And, and it was brilliant, you know, just he, he gave me sort of 20, 25 minutes of his time and, and was really engaged and, and good value. And he seems to, I mean, his memory seemed, it's just incredible. You know, some of the details he was, he was remembering, things like, you know, when we went in 1990, we remembered from the previous year that we had jet lag, so we tweaked this and we, we did this. So he just remembered loads of little details and um, and he was really on good form. So so that was an honour to speak to him. And John McGovern as well, that was brilliant. He, he took a bit of warming up, but then once 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 he sort of got into the swing of it, he, he, you know, he was brilliant value and we were talking for, you know, 45 minutes yeah. an hour. Really, yeah. really good. And that's so, yeah, what you see, can do. If you write a book... Players of that era are approachable, and some have even written memoirs, uh, from which you quote Rigo Saki wrote his book. I don't know if you've picked it up. It came out at the end of last year. Yes, I have, and it was, it was brilliant. And um, some of the players from that era are approachable. Others, others aren't so, but you've just, I think you've just got to knock as many doors as you can, and, and you do get a lot of knockbacks. Um, but just keep on knocking on the door, and, and let's see who answers it, really. And that's, that's what I did. And I really enjoyed the interview process for this book and interviewed so many more people than I did for the previous book. And I think that's just a confidence thing to approach people. So, yes, let's spin backwards. Um, you mentioned Milan. Here's a player from Juventus. It was interesting reading that chapter about the Intercontinental Cup final of 1985. Uh, Michel Platini had a superstar game. Uh, he had a goal disallowed uh, that you describe very brilliantly. If something can be very, yeah, something can be very brilliant. Will we remember Michel Platini, who was the best player in the world between Maradona and, let's say, Baggio or Van Basten? He was the player. Or will history remember the guy who had these contracts and this money sent to him by Blatter? Well, who, what do you want to be remembered? Recency bias is obviously a thing, isn't it? And I think it depends on your age. Most people who are sort of 30, you know, mid-30s and younger will we'll probably remember him. I don't really remember him as a player, you know. He, he was he retired in, what, 1986 and I was born in 83, so I don't remember him as a player. And, you know, so I think that's a real key thing, how old you are. Adam Digby, I spoke, I interviewed, he's um, he's a, English, he's a Juventus fan, um, he's a cor- their correspondent for Forbes Sport, and he, he wrote a book about Juve's history in 2015. He, one of his quotes in the, that I included in the book was, for three years, he was head and shoulders above every other player in the world, and Juve fans are grateful he did it with their team. Many fans refuse to talk about anything he has done since he left and prefer to remember what a great player he is. So I think that's um, quite interesting to hear that from a from a Juve fan. And I, I would probably say to anyone who's not who, who doesn't remember him as a player, that, that 1985 final, just Google it and watch the video of the highlights, and you'll see you'll see what a brilliant player he was. And yeah, that, that disallowed goal where he famously sort of lay down on the turf in celebration, in, in sort of frustration, if you like, become quite iconic. And um, Paolo Dybala, from who plays for Juve, he, he recreated it a couple of years ago. So for Juve fans, it's quite an iconic moment. And um, fittingly, he scored the winning pen in that, that game as well. Very good. It was nice to see a mention of Evani, Signor Evani. I can't, Adalberto, I can't remember his first name. Oh, Adalberto. Alberico, yeah. uh, thank you. Like the yeah, ham. Yeah. the guy with the yeah. glasses on the Italian bench. Um, exactly, yeah. <laughs> who, who, and his his claim to fame is that uh, his goal won the game in which Intercontinental Cup final? That was in '89. He um, he was a he was a kind of squad player, you know, not 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 very sort of famous and um, and lauded, but 
Saki loved him because he was a he was he was someone who would carry out instructions and he came off the bench and he scored a free kick against Rene Higita. He also scored Saki I spoke about him to Saki when I interviewed him and, and he was keen to point out that he actually scored another couple of really important goals for Milan in that, that era. Um I can't remember exactly which version, but he scored he scored a winning goal for them in the European Super Cup one year and then a couple of others that were quite important. So so you know, he, he was a he was a very useful player in, in big games. Now, that match in uh, 1989 took place in the Midday Sun, as if you're pointing us towards Stephen Scragg's book, In the Heat of the Midday Sun, that we're not plugging because this is about your book, When Two Worlds Collide. Oh dear, I just did. It wasn't until 1994 that the IC final, as I call it in my notes, was played in the evening in Japan time. Would it not have been more sensible to negotiate a global TV deal in the 80s? so that the times could match up and people didn't have to either stay up or get up early? Or was the money simply not there, even with the Toyota cars being given away to the winners? I think there's probably a couple of things to, to, to point out here, is that in that era, live football wasn't sort of very widespread, was it? I mean, you had the World Cup, you had the FA Cup final, but I don't think there was a lot more live football in that era. So obviously now, you know... It, it would be a lot different. The TV rights would be snapped up. So, so that's one thing to point out. I think as well, was, this Toyota Cup was put together quite hastily, which um, anyone who reads the book and reads the, the chapter where I interviewed a guy called Patrick Nally, it was actually supposed to be this 1980 version, which was the very first version between uh, Forest and Nacional of Uruguay. It was supposed to be a two-legged event. Um, and basically they just couldn't, they couldn't agree dates um, they found one day and then Uruguay were playing on that day when you know most of the national squad played for Uruguay they couldn't agree it and, and it was about to fall out of bed and after the troubles of the 70s had it not been played that year I really think that would have been it so Toyota and West Nally they sort of stepped in but it was all done very very quickly so perhaps it, it might have been something they would have looked into had they had more time but they just did everything on the fly and, and I, I, I don't know if this is the case but just thinking about it you know, Toyota were the primary sponsor. It was also perhaps trying to gear up towards the Japanese audience as well. You know, the, the, the game was being held in their country um, and, you know, that might have been a factor as well. West Nally, you mentioned, this is a PR company who seemed to rival Adidas and Nike as the key people who brought the game into the modern era. Uh, they hired Joseph Blatter. So is it West Nally's fault that football is as it is or is that clutching at a very big straw? Yeah, well, um, I mean, you know, when I spoke to Patrick Nally, who um, who who, found, who was sort of co-founder of the company, and, and and he was quite instrumental in a lot of the the marketing we see now in the in the World Cup. He, he was telling me about how he went to Argentina in 1978 to negotiate sponsorship rights with the military regime, which um, he, he said was quite frightening. Just a bit. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, he was a great guy, and he gave me some really great information. I loved talking to him. But at the back of my mind, if I'm being honest, there were times where I did think, you know, there is a lot of stuff I don't like about football nowadays, um, that, that sort of monetization of everything. And, and was that the genesis of it? Maybe. Um, perhaps it was, but I suppose what he did for the Intercontinental Cup, you, you, you could argue, is, is a positive thing. They revived a competition that, that was loved by many. So I think in this case, I'll, uh, I'll give him a pass. Yes. Well, the one thing he couldn't do is let an English team win it in the pre-Bosman era. Uh, should we as Englishmen be appalled that uh, the five times that English teams were in the final against either an Argentinian or a Brazilian team, they lost? Possibly, but I mean, 
there's this there's a sort of opinion or a, an attitude of you know the English teams sort of didn't bother with the competition. You know, I've heard some people say that, that that they didn't really take it seriously. But when I spoke to John McGovern, he he did he travelled with the squad that game and he sat on the bench next to Clough during the game, but he was injured, so he didn't take part. But when I asked him if Forrest took the game lightly, I could sense the tone in his voice. He was absolutely actually disgusted with the question at the, at the suggestion that and, and that's why I thought you know why would why would a team like Forest or with, with Clough and, and Liverpool with all their, their players that they had that are used to winning week in week out why would they go all the way to South America or all the way to Tokyo and not try you know I, I just don't believe it's a thing and I think there's also circumstances in, in quite a few of the defeats the English team suffered so Man United in 68 Obviously, they came up against the Estudiantes, who were, were sort of very brutal and, and anti-football, if you like. But the Busby era was also coming to an end. You know, it peaked in, in May 68 when United won the European Cup. But from, from then on, it was really downhill. And three months after they lost the Intercontinental Cup of 68, uh, Busby stepped down. So it was, it was really at the tail end of an era. The same could be said for Forest as well. They lost to uh, Nacional, that we mentioned before, from Uruguay in 1980, the first ever one in Tokyo. And again, many people would say that the Forest's team under Clough and Taylor peaked in May May 1980 when they beat Hamburg for the European Cup. You know, by by the time they played Nacional towards the end of the year, the squad began to break up and um, and then Taylor actually retired in 82. So, and and same for Liverpool, you know, they lost to Flamengo in, in 81. Many people say that was a transition period for them after they won the European Cup. You know, Flamengo perhaps caught them at the right time. And, you know, Liverpool were an ageing team. People like Ray Clements left. Ian Rush and Ronnie Whelan, who were, were great goal scorers for Liverpool, they didn't start in Tokyo. But, you know, that season, I think they scored 44 in total together. Um, and, and, and Stephen Scragg actually said to me, you know, there, there was real talk of the Empire crumbling. So, so perhaps there were circumstances there. But I think... Also, I don't think we should take away from the teams that won the games against them in South America because one of the things I love about the Intercontinental Cup is that it was an era when where it was more equal between the two continents. By the time it finished in 2004, 22 victories were recorded for South America compared to 21 for Europe. Yeah, that's the so. take-home stat. That's the big stat. Uh, and indeed, by 2002, I had a look. Uh, I'm not going to try and name them, but Real Madrid had five players who were either... Actually, I'll get you to do that. Five players who were South American, who started in the matchday squad in the 2002 Intercontinental Cup final. I think three were Brazilian and two were Argentine. Argentine. Yeah, so Ronaldo was man of the match. He he, he was man of the match in that, that game and he scored one of the two goals. Um, you've obviously got Roberto Carlos mm-hmm. at left back. Um, Cambiasso uh, yep. was another one. And um, there are a couple of others, sort of, um, let me just think now, Santi Solari was one. Yes, and, this is, this is uh, the ten-pointer. Which Brazilian was an unused sub? So the other one, Flavio Contisar. Oh, chapeau, chapeau, very good. Uh, <laughs> and uh, for that, Dan Williamson, you get When Two Worlds Collide. Uh, the Intercontinental Cup years, I've called it. Thank you very title. much. Yes, it could be. it could be anything. And those years were 1960 when the two legs were separated by two months uh, and 2004, which was the last one when Porto won, uh, as we've discussed. Alexandro Costa-Curta had a tough time of it. Yes, he did. And um, I wrote a piece about that for um, Gentleman Ultra recently, actually. He, uh, him, and, him and Maldini played five versions each 
which is incredible when you think about it. The first one was in 89, and they both played in 2003 when Milan lost to Boca Juniors in the, in the penultimate version. Um, so I, I just find that absolutely incredible. 14, 14 years? That's 14 years, isn't it? Um, at the top of the game. But it was a real mixed bag because Costa Curta was involved in 1989 when they won. He was involved in 1990 when they won. But then um, he was involved in 93 when they lost to Sao Paulo and um, he was at fault for one of the goals at least and he had a bit of a running battle with um, one of their strikers called Muller who played in Italy, spoke Italian and after he scored he got right in his face and was was proper goading him. Then in 94 they lost to Vélez Sarsfield and um, Costa Curta had a bit of a nightmare. He gave away a goal, um, he gave away the penalty for the first goal the second goal, he, he sold the goalkeeper short and um, and uh, a guy called Omar Assad ended up getting the ball and, and taking it around the keeper and scoring. And then in 2003, actually in 1994, he, he might have also been red-carded. Um, 2003 against Boca, um, he missed the penalty in the yeah. shootout as well. So so he, he had a really topsy-turvy um, relationship with the competition, which I find quite interesting, which is why I wrote the... Uh, I wrote a sort of long-form piece um, for the Gentleman Ultra, which came out last month. Oh, congratulations. And who was in goal for Vélez against Milan? That was um, José Luis Chilaver. There will be children uh... who do not know that name. And so now I'm moving into that era of football fan, because I I don't remember Italia 90, but I'm starting to move into that pre-Bantz era of football that we that we both find ourselves in Uh, i'm gonna have to gallop through these years obviously you're doing a lot of podcasts and appearances can you give us a rundown of where we can hear you in the next few weeks yeah i mean i've already recorded um, a couple of podcasts that are going to be out going to be out soon in in conjunction with the release date on the 18th of july um read one called read the game podcast i've got one next week with um Tim Vickery and, and Dotson on the Brazilian Shirt Name podcast, wow. which I'm really excited about. So, um, and then I'm, I'll be doing the Gentleman Ultra one as well, um, and I've done out, outside right as well uh, with Chris Lee. So, Obviously, Chris gets everyone. Yeah. So, so oh, that yeah, means that means we can't go into big detail uh, about Peñarol, who beat Real Madrid in 1966 and Villa in 1982. We can't really talk about the Flamengo uh, victory, which. Um, True. Has the story of that schoolboy who helped Flamengo win in 1981 been told on film yet? Because it should be. Yeah, I don't think it has actually, but it is a great story, isn't it? Um, yeah, it was. It was basically a, the, the son of a European. For, for anyone who doesn't know, it's the son of a Uruguayan diplomat who was actually living in England, um, and he recorded all Liverpool's victories on VHS when they were winning the European Cup. And then when he was back over in South America, he happened to um, to bump into. Um, the, the Flamengo sort of delegation in a hotel, and um, you know ended up passing on the videos, and 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 that's that's how Flamengo had a bit more of an idea about Liverpool uh, and how they played, etc. Than Liverpool did of Flamengo. So so yeah, that was quite quite interesting. And again, there is we could do two hours on this, but I'm going to have to ask you this horrible question, which is name a South American eleven from the history of the Intercontinental Cup. Who is at nine next to Pele? Do you put Higuita, Chilaver, or someone else in goal? Uh, do you, will Rai and Zico both make it? They're the calibre of player who had hardly been seen on telly at all. They would be seen every four years or so. They all really made their mark at the Intercontinental Cup, having been part of a Copa Libertadores team. Even Hernan Crespo won the Libertad- uh, Libertadores. But 
Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, so, okay, I'm gonna, this is going to be a, a really ridiculously unbalanced team. So um, anyone who's a sort of tactician or they like the starting 11s to have a really kind of That's okay. structured... The cup yeah, is a bit so, bonkers, so your team can it, be bonkers too. And it, it might have more than 11 players in it as well, but I'll just run through some of the players that I think um, that should be should get an honourable mention. Thank you. Um, the forward line, I'll go for, obviously, Pelé, uh, who in 1960, it was 62 when he played against Benfica, um, he scored a hat-trick in Lisbon, and, and even himself and many other people at Tim Vickery that we just mentioned say that that's his arguably his greatest performance of his whole career. Um, he has to be in there. Um, Martin Palermo, who scored two against Real Madrid in 2000 for Boca Juniors, I'll put him in there. Um, I'll put Ronaldo in there. Um, as we said, scored a goal and was the um, man of the match in 2002. So I'll take him there. And also a guy called Alberto Spencer, who played for Peñarol. He, he was an Ecuadorian striker and someone who scored a handful of goals. I think to this day, he's still the leading scorer in the Copa Libertadores history with 49. Ooh. That might be sort of a few goals out here and there, but he's one of those players that he, he was around at the time of Pelé and doesn't really get the plaudits he deserves, but you know he, he, he scored a bag full of goals, so I'm going to take him as well. By the way, so that's four strikers already. Uh, th- that needed, Peñarol against Benfica, it needed a third game because it was a tennis-style scoring system. It wasn't done on goals. It was done on if you won the game. So, it was done on points, yeah. Sorry, so on like, points, yeah. I mean, there were, there, were, there, were some, there were some instances where, for example, in 61, when Pe- Peñarol beat Benfica, they they lost the first leg 1-0, and they won the second leg 5-0. Nonsense. And they still, bonkers. They still needed a playoff. Completely bonkers. Um, and they changed that, actually, from, I think it was 69 onwards, they yeah. changed it to a, a goals on aggregate format. Um, so, moving into midfield, then, I've, I've got five-man midfield, so as you can see, it's quite a top-heavy uh, team. Wing-backs, wing-backs. <laughs> I'll go yeah, for Z- yeah I, don't, I don't know which one of them would have done the hard work in, in, in the wing-back position, but, um, you know, we, we, won't, we won't worry about stuff like that, will we? Nope. Um, I'll, go, I'll go for Zico, who, who won it in 81 with Flamengo. Um, Ray, who, who won it in 92 with, um, with Sao Paulo, and then he ended up going to Paris Saint-Germain as, as a result of that, sort of a few months later. Um, I'll go for Raquel May, who was majestic in 2000 against uh, Real Madrid. I'll go for Renato, who played for Gremio in 83. Um, man of the match, scored two goals, brilliant performance. And I'll go for uh, Boccini, who um, played for Independiente in 73 and 84. So he, he won it twice, and that was 11 years apart, which I think is a, is a good start. A couple of guys in defence that I'll go for. I'll go for two defenders. Um guy called Hugo de Leon, who won it. Uh, he won the Copa Libertadores with Nacional in 1980, but he actually moved to Gremio uh, after that. So he missed the game against Forest that Nacional won. Um, no doubt, had he stayed, he would have played in that and won, and won that game. Um, he won the Intercontinental Cup with Gremio in 83, and um, he ended up back at Nacional and won it with them playing against PSV in 88. And, uh, you know, he, he was, a, by all accounts, he was a great leader and a great centre-back. And um, I'll, I'll probably just go with one defender, actually. And then in, in goal, I'll go for Chilavert over Higuita. Chilavert won and Higuita didn't for a start. Oh, okay. Chilavert kept a clean sheet. And he also, the first goal, he sort of started the ball rolling. He, he had the ball in, in, on, on the floor. He sort, of, he, he sort of drifted out to sort of the middle of his own half like he tended to do. And then he pinged a diagonal all the way across to the right. And then a goal ended up coming for it. So I'll, uh, I'll go for him and... If you watch also the uh, Ivani goal that we talked about against the Gita, if you watch it on YouTube, I can't get my head around 
Igita's, uh, he really winds him up, as you can probably tell. His positioning, I don't understand what he was doing. He, he lines up a seven-man wall, and he was he was just ridiculous. Like he, he wasn't sort of covering. He was neither here nor there, and and the the, the, the free kick sort of clicked off someone's thigh and went into the back of the net. And had his positioning been a bit keener, he probably would have um, he would have saved it. So I'm, I'm going to sort of I'm going to ditch him from my eleven for that that only. <laughs> that one uh, five four one five four formation. I don't fancy us keeping many clean sheets, but it, it'll be fun along the way. Anyway. Well, this is why uh, you need a great manager. So do you want Bianchi, Kubia or Mugika? Mugika. I don't know where the stress is. I'll have to go, I'll have to go for, for, for Carlos Bianchi because um, he, he's the greatest manager in the in Intercontinental Cup history. Um, he he revived a really unfashionable Velez uh, in, when he took over in 93 and ended up beating that great Milan side of 94. Um and, and then and then he won it with Bocker in 2000, lost in 2001 with Bocker, so he could have won it for a third time then. They were outplayed on that night by Bayern, um, but it was a really close game, only settled in extra time. So, and, and then he won it again with Bocker in 2003 when he he'd almost have to he'd almost have to rebuild the whole team because you know by that point the, the best players were getting cherry picked by European teams. So it, having to rebuild that team and, and go and win that that prize. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. So I'm going to go for him as my manager. Thank you very much. I thought you might. Um, Blue and gold passion for more information on yeah. Carlos Bianchi. <laughs> um, to, to conclude, because again, you, you will talk about, I was going to ask you my killer question, which was the Intercontinental Cup was a clash of styles and fists, uh, which is best reflected by a quotation uh, that pitted shirt-pulling South Americans against the barging and slide-tackling Brits. So rather than just ask you about that, because you'll talk about that elsewhere, you really brought it to life. I think I could, even without the footage, because some of these games took place in the 60s and 70s, uh, you describe it really well. So that is the success in this book, uh, When Two Worlds Collide. And that kind of dichotomy made it such an exciting tournament. I'm on the record of saying many times that this World Cup is going to be boring and pointless and Brazil will win. But it's about systems at this point. Everyone, whether you're Argentina or France, you're playing the same system against players you train with and it's less exciting. Yeah, I think and, and that's why, you know, this, this competition has its detractors. I, I won't deny that. But for me, it's like you say, it's, it's from an era when, when things were less polished. You know, they were... They were unpredictable, just things you wouldn't see nowadays. It's it's literally another era. Um, so so I, I think it's a, a brilliant competition. And if I didn't write this book and then no one else wrote a book about it, then it would just get lost to history. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that would be a real shame. So you know, I'm, I'm quite happy with the, the, the work I've done. And um, you know, it, it won't, I don't think it'll be a bestseller by any means. But you know, I hope that the people that do pick it up will um, will enjoy it and. You know, it gets sort of kept as a, a good reference for a, for a fascinating competition. Here, here, I can actually see someone like four four two filleting like twenty things that made the Intercontinental Cup a bit bonkers. Uh, for instance, <laughs> Janino played in the nineteen ninety three tournament, which um, or final. It was Sao Paulo against Milan, not Marseille, and that's a story in itself. Red Star yeah. playing Colo Colo. Wow. That is a blast from the, the dim and distant past. And then uh, the poor player uh, from Panathinaikos um, who broke his leg. And Panathinaikos shouldn't even have been there because they were the losing finalists of the Euro- European Cup. Yeah, that 
defender all too often in the 70s. I think off the top of my head, it was seven times that a European champion refused to play. Five times they, the runners-up stepped in, but a couple of times they didn't, and then it just didn't happen at all. So, so that, that was that was also one of the reasons why the Cup ended up having to be revived and, and taken to yeah. Tokyo. It was taken to Tokyo to sort of give it a, a new lease of life. Really troublesome in the 70s. Although one name stood out. Who is Feyenoord's cult hero as a result of his goal in the 19... It must be 1970 uh, Intercontinental yeah. Cup. Forgive me for my pronunciation if anyone Dutch is listening. You, Van Darling. He was a he was a sort of a, an average squad player who ended up coming off the bench and scoring the winning goal in the 70 version against Estudiantes. And the funny thing was that he was wearing glasses. So in the wake of the goal, the Estudiantes players complained that there was some sort of unfair advantage going on. One of them took his glasses off, put them on the floor and stamped on them and broke them. Had that had echoes of two years before on the Bombonera when they played United and um, one of Nobby Styles' class contact lenses fell out on the floor. And, you know, rather than picking up and helping him, someone st- stood on it and, and broke the glass. So Nobby Styles, who was blind as a bat, was playing um, playing with one eye for the rest of the game. Um, so, yeah, Yu Van Dali went off the pitch. He, he got them fixed. He came back on and, and they won the cup. And um, those glasses remain today in the Fine Old Museum. I love that. And yeah, the camp. Amazing. And, uh, yeah, he, he, gets, he gets wheeled out every few years, you know, to go on chat shows and talk about that. And um, I think he's... Uh, it, it, it's his claim to fame, but it's not a bad one, really, is it? Well, it's a shame. Mark Bosnich doesn't get the same treatment at Man United after his heroics in the 1999 final. Well, he wasn't even man of the match, but I think that's, uh, that's down to marketing, I think. More uh, than, uh, yeah, well, this is, this is such a great book because the Intercontinental Cup is a victim of football's globalisation, the modern game, um, a time when South American and European teams could complete as equals. Um, what was that stat? Barca and Real, between them, have won it 15 times. Or seven times? The, the FIFA World Club Cup, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, and I think South American teams have got to the final, you know, or they've, they've won it, sorry, four times. And it's, I, I don't even bother with it because it, even last year, you know, Palmeiras were really fancied. And then, then they lost to a sort of quite functional, but not really exciting Chelsea team. So, mm. yeah, it's, um, it's becoming more and more predictable. And, and, you know, that's not what we like about football, in my opinion, anyway. Not at all. Daniel Williamson, thank you for coming back to the Football Library. When Two Worlds Collide, the Intercontinental Cup years, published on pitch just as his book Blue and Gold Passion was. Good luck with whatever you choose to write about. Next, Stephen Scragg would probably, Dan, like a word with you. Uh, the book is out now. Just like the library.